We're going to read again from the book of Judges. We're going to read a fair bit because but we could read more, but I'm just taking a wee selection because it's going to cover a fair part of, of the remainder of Judges. So I'm going to start reading in Judges chapter 17. So that's Judges chapter 17 and reading from verse 1. Now a man named Micah from the hill country of Ephraim said to his mother, The eleven hundred shekels of silver that were taken from you and about which I heard you utter a curse, I have that silver with me. I took it. Then his mother said, The Lord bless you, my son. When he returned the eleven hundred shekels of silver to his mother, she said, I solemnly consecrate my silver to the Lord for my son to make a carved image and a cast idol. I will give it back to you. So he returned the silver to his mother, and she took 200 shekels of silver and gave them to a silversmith who made them into the image and the idol, and they were put in Micah's house. Now this man Micah had a shrine, and he made an ephod and some idols and installed one of his sons as his priest. In those days, the king Israel had no king, Everyone did as he saw fit. A young Levite from Bethlehem in Judah, who had been living within the the clan of Judah, left that town in search of some other place to stay. On his way, he came to Micah's house in the hill country of Ephraim. Micah asked him, Where are you from? I'm a Levite from Bethlehem in Judah, he said, and I'm looking for a place to stay. Then Micah said to him, Live with me and be my father and priest, and I'll give you ten shekels of silver a year, your clothes and your food. So the Levite agreed agreed to live with him, and the young man was to him like one of his sons. Then Micah installed the Levite, and the young man became his priest and lived in his house. And Micah said, Now I know that the Lord will be good to me, since this Levite has become my priest. In those days, Israel had no king. And in those days, the tribe of the Danites was seeking a place of their own where they might settle, because they had not yet come into inheritance among the tribes of Israel. So the Danites sent five warriors from Zorah and Eshtol to spy out the land and explore it. These men represented all their clans. They told them, go explore the land. The men entered the hill country of Ephraim and came to the house of Micah where they spent the night. When they were near Micah's house, they recognized the the voice of the young Levite. So they turned in there and asked him, Who brought you here? What are you doing in this place? Why are you here? He told them what Micah had done for him and said, He has hired me and I am his priest. Then they said to him, Please inquire of God to learn whether our journey will be successful. The priest answered them, Go in peace, your journey has the Lord's approval. So the five men left and came to Laish, where they saw that the people were living in safety, like the Sidonians, unsuspecting and secure. And since their land lacked nothing, they were prosperous. Also, They lived a long way from the Sidonians and had no relationship with anyone else. When they returned to Zorah and Eshtol, 
that their brothers asked them, how did you find things? They answered, come on, let's attack them. We have seen that this land is very good. Aren't you going to do something? Don't hesitate to go over there and take it. When you get there, you will find an unsuspecting people and a spacious land that God has put into your hands, a land that lacks nothing. And then we go to the end of the story in verse 27, where we read that they took what Micah had made and his priest and went on to Laish against a peaceful and unsuspecting people. They attacked them with the sword and burned down their city. There was no one to rescue them because they lived a long way from Sidon and had no relationship with anyone else. The city was in a valley near Beth Rehob. The Danites rebuilt the city and settled there. They named it Dan after their forefather Dan, who was born to, be, to Israel, though the land, the city, used to be called Laish. There the Danites set up for themselves the idols, and Jonathan, son of Gershom, the son of Moses, and his sons were priests for the tribe of Dan until the time of the captivity of the land. They continued to use the land, the idols Micah had made all the time the house of God was in Shiloh. Can we thank God for his word? It's great to be able to come and share that word with you today. I'm not going to be here next week. That's because I'm going back to Wigton. I was the pastor there a long time ago. And it's their 24th anniversary of their building. So they've asked me to come back and, and speak. So that's where I'm going to be next weekend. I'm sorry, I'm not going to be here to finish off judges. But we'll get to that very soon. Let's pray. Father, we pray that, Lord, that you'll open our, our minds, that you'll open our hearts, and that you will transform our lives through your word. And as your spirit speaks into our lives and applies that word to us, Lord, help us to see that when we meet with you, our lives should be changed because we've come into the presence of a mighty and our holy God. And we pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen. I was just thinking what a respectable congregation I see set out before me this morning. A fine upstanding group of men and women and young people. Couldn't get any better in any church anywhere in Scotland. So let me just test you out now then with a scenario. Now this is a late one night you're parking your car in a car park, but you misjudge your distance. I'm sure none of you ever do, but anyway, you do. And you lightly scrape down the side of the car that's parked next to you. Not much damage is done, really very little. But here's the problem. The other car is a brand new Porsche. And you know it's going to cost an absolute fortune to repair so what do you do do you own up to what you've done and maybe leave your name and address on a note under the windscreen wiper or do you kind of start to rationalize things you know somebody with a car like that they're bound to have great insurance and then quickly reverse out 
and find somewhere else to park. Now, I read a story a while ago that speaks of an incident just like this, except for the fact that there were a small group of witnesses who actually saw this happen. And an elderly gentleman, impeccably dressed, got out of his car and inspected very carefully the damage that he'd done. Then taking a, a piece of paper and a lovely fountain pen, he wrote out a note and put it under the Porsche's windscreen wiper and then he reversed and drove away. Now, everyone who witnessed it felt that this act had in some part restored their faith in human nature. One of them on the way past stopped just to glance at the note that had been written. And this is what he read. A number of people around here think I'm leaving you a note that includes my name and address. Sorry, I'm not. <laughs> now this is a, a good illustration of what we're going to be focusing in this morning in these continuing studies on the book of Judges. The fact that it is possible for something, for us, to look on the surface pretty good. To look as if we're doing the right thing or maybe almost the right thing. Well, the truth is that at heart, we can be so far from being right and so far, actually, from God. But before we move in to look at how this all works its way out here, let me first just say a few words about the context here and about the, the structure of Judges. And that is that the first 16 chapters of Judges that we've looked at already take us chronologically through the different stories of the various delivers that God raised up for his people. As God's people seemed almost locked in to a continuous sickening cycle at this point in their history of sin, disaster, repentance, rescue by God by a deliverer, and then back again to the beginning all over again. And on and on it went. But you see, in these last chapters of Judges, what the writer does here is he, he takes us back and he, and he tells us of incidents and stories from fairly early on in this period that are designed simply to draw together and to underline for us that central theme of the book of Judges. That as God's people turn away from him, as they turn away from truly living under his sovereign authority with a heart obedience to his word, then this inevitable leads, always leads to spiritual anarchy and to moral chaos. The statement found in Judges 17.6 here and in chapter 21-25 that the last verse of the book of Judges really does say it all. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everybody did as he saw fit. Well, let's look together now at how some of the ways in which the people of God maybe might on the surface seem okay, while within what's really going on is anarchy and chaos in which no matter how we try to hide it behind a cloak of respectability shows itself, reveals itself ultimately in our lifestyle in the way that we actually live. Let's look at some of the ways that this might show itself. And the first is in false worship. And this is seen here in the, the story of Micah 
and his mother. And it is a, a pretty murky kind of story. Because you see, Micah's family were obviously a wealthy family. And because of that, because of their material success, no doubt they were highly regarded, well thought of in their community. Well, the, the, the sum of money that's spoken of here, 1,100 shekels, which is not suggested was in any way the whole of their fortune. Well, just to try and put that into a kind of perspective for us, the Levite, who's later employed by Micah, he's happy, notice, to settle for 10 shekels a year. I was looking at this and discovered online that the average UK salary 2018 is 26000 500. So you see, if you put that into today's terms, in our society, this solo, we're talking about a value for us of something in the region of three million pounds. So Micah was then from a wealthy family. He had a privileged background, but we're told he stole from his own mother, which is about as shameful as it gets. And then it wasn't even guilt and shame that moved him to return this fortune, which would at least have given some hope there was at least a shred of spiritual reality behind that outward facade of Jewish religiosity. But it wasn't shame. It wasn't an awareness of sin that drove him to this. Rather, it was a mixture of superstition and of selfishness. You see, he hears that his mother has called down a curse on whoever stole this fortune. And immediately, because of fear of what this curse might mean for him, Micah hands the money back. But what's, I think, very revealing, though, is his mother's reaction to this. Without any word of reproach, any word of condemnation, immediately, straight away, she calls down a blessing on her son, presuming I suppose, imagine that this blessing is going to call out a previous curse. And then she solemnly consecrates, she promises this silver to her son, to the Lord, sorry, that her son might make an image and an idol with it. But notice, and I think this is really what I think helps us to grasp the, the, the real dynamics of what's going on here, what actually happens is that in the end, she only gives her son 200 shekels, less than a fifth of what she'd promised. Now, now leaving aside just for a moment the fact that here she's leading her son into idolatry, into the worship of an idol, the worship of a graven image rather than the true and the living God, something that's against the second commandment, the very core of, of Jewish faith. But leaving that aside, do you see what was going on here? No wonder Micah became the kind of man that he did. Given the example he'd received from his mother, given the kind of mother that he'd had. For this woman was obviously someone who kept up a front of religious respectability, who kept up a front of devotion to God, but it was a distorted respectability. It was a misguided and perverse devotion. You see, behind the front of religion, there was nothing real. There was nothing spiritually healthy. And her son was a thief. No wonder he became a thief. 
For his mother was a thief, who hears stole even from God. And it doesn't matter that she shouldn't have been promising to God what she did. That really doesn't matter. Now, the facts are that here she even broke what, according to her distorted worldview, was a legitimate promise. So we have then, I would say, two issues here, both connected to, both emerging from, both symptoms of false worship. And that is poor parental example and idolatry. Well, are these applicable then? Are these relevant to us today, to this 21st century context that we live in? And if so, in what ways then are they relevant? Well, first, let's deal with poor parental example. You know, it's said that one of the distinctives of today's society, and especially among younger people, is that today the first question that now is asked is not, is something true? That's what used to be asked, but today rather the question that's asked is, does it work? That's the first question. Then once that question has been answered, then people are inclined to go on to the truth question. So you see, as far as, as faith is concerned, as far as spirituality is concerned, the question young people today are asking is, does it work? Does it make a difference? Does it make a positive difference to somebody's life, to the way that they live? And if the answer, if the conclusion that they come to is no, it doesn't. They'll then say, for example, their parents' faith is just a respectable religious front with little or no positive life transformation behind that. No compassion for the poor and the hurting. No mercy, no forgiveness, no real personal holiness, no real grace. If young people come to that conclusion, then they, the youth of our society, they, our children, they are not going to buy into faith. Young people, even young people who've been brought up in the context of the church, they will reject the church and far more importantly will sometimes often turn their back on God. They'll do that if they see a fundamental disconnect between the faith that we proclaim and the way that we live. Increasingly, they will no longer hang around. They won't do it because it's the right thing to do it. They won't do it because it's what our family has always done. Just doing it because we should or doing it because we've always done it, it is no longer a convincing argument as far as many people, not just young people, are concerned. So how then do we respond to this? How should we react to this? Well, I would suggest to you, by beginning with an honest, searching look at our lives. And if we see a problem of some kind, if that's what we see, then there is only one meaningful further response and that is we have got to stop robbing God, robbing our children and robbing ourselves and we need to get to repenting of a facade of religious respectability that perhaps our Christianity has been reduced to and we need to get back into living a life of spiritual 
integrity. We need to get back to living a Christian life that's about a living personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ that then transforms every area of our lives. And as for the other issue here, the other symptom of false worship, idolatry. Well, put that as simply as we can here. Idolatry is either about making an image of a false god and worshipping it, or it's about trying to represent the true God in an image and then making this image the focus of our worship. And you see, God hates this. God absolutely hates this. Because no image can ever adequately represent him. And because as his people give their worship elsewhere, then that inevitably diminishes both him and them. It diminishes us. The people who were made to know and adore the living God, give their adoration to things that have been made by their own hands, that truly is a travesty, an abomination. But if we're maybe sitting back and sort of thinking, well, this is at least one sin that we can't be guilty of, then I would say, think again. For while not many people today admittedly in society, might deliberately and physically build an idol. Yet there's still plenty of idolatry around. For you see, we are guilty of idolatry when the God that we worship is not actually the God of the Bible, but rather is a God who we've cut down to size, who we've made suit us. A God who's undemanding in terms of the way that we live. A God who we can push to the fringe of our lives. A God who's there when we need him, but who says nothing when we don't. A God who takes little interest in the practical day-to-day living of our lives. And there's also, as well as this, still plenty of physical idolatry around us today. Please don't be deceived. There is. And people who worship, that is who put first their homes, their cars, their holiday, their careers, even their families. Things that are good in their own right. But we worship them when these are the things that come first in life for us. When these are the things that drive us and that we value most of all. What a tragedy is when we put things even good things, even the best things in God's place. And in Micah's case here, the meaningless of all this, I think is well illustrated. As later this idol and everything associated with it was stolen from this. And he was upset. He tried to get it back. I want to ask you to think of this. How much more upset he must have been when at the end of his life he stood before God in the presence of a holy God and he realized that despite his practice of religion, that his life had actually been spiritually meaningless. That he'd thrown his life away and he had no way of getting it back. So then we've looked at the first way in which we can give an outward impression of being right with God while within that's not so let's move on now to the second and that is false motives that I think are illustrated here in the life 
of this Levite, who later we see is named Jonathan, who Micah sets up as the high priest in this shrine that houses his idols. But you know, you might think that I'm being a bit harsh on Jonathan here. You know, that Jonathan maybe might have got things wrong in the man that he chose to work for, and he might have got things wrong even in the manner that he worshipped God, involving these idols at Micah's request. But surely, you might say, we have to acknowledge that somewhere at heart, his motives were good. For his desire was to serve the Lord. Yes, admittedly, he was misguided and misled. But surely, you might say, his heart motive was right. Well, in fact, this is not the case at all. For to begin, Levites, members of the tribe of Levi, sons of Levi, from Exodus 32 on, they were given particular duties allocated to them in the worship of the people of Israel. And particularly as you read Numbers 4 there, that this is mainly to do with the fabric associated with that worship. And then later on in Numbers, in Numbers 25, there the Levites were assigned different cities, cities in which they were commanded to stay and commanded to continue this work. Once local worship centers, once synagogues were set up, so this, you see, was all about the, the shift from being a united tribe that was moving around the wilderness to being a people taking the promised land. There's one of the sons of Israel away out. <laughs> Goodbye, Reuben. May your tribe be blessed. Thank you. <laughs> to being a, a people taking possession of the promised land and populating it and living in cities throughout it. So you see, this Levite here, this Jonathan, he shouldn't have been moving around the country looking for somewhere to work and to stay. No, he should have been living and serving in the city that had been allocated to him by the Lord, which certainly, incidentally, wouldn't have been Bethlehem where we're told he'd come from, where he'd been staying, because Bethlehem was not a Levitical city. But then his sin is compounded by the fact of the actual role he takes on, the job opportunity that he seizes here. As when Micah asks him to be the priest of, of this idolatrous shrine, well, without hesitation, Jonathan takes the job. Now, now, leaving aside the fact that we've already established that this shrine was a total abomination to the Lord, but leaving all that aside, Levites were forbidden to act as priests. Because in Numbers 3, verse 10, this was a privilege that was specifically reserved for the descendants of Aaron. And then in Numbers 16, when an ordinary Levite, Korah, when he tried to act as a priest, God caused the ground then to open and to swallow him up. But what's really going on then in Jonathan the Levite's heart? Behind his, his cloak, of religious respectability. It's probably best revealed, I think, in his reaction. I didn't read this, but it's there in uh, Judge, uh, sorry, Judges 18. In his reaction, when the tribe of Dan raid Micah's house and they carry off his idol and all the other contents of his shrine. For you see, 
when they offer to Jonathan the job of priest to his family, well, oh, sorry, as priest to their tribe, then without hesitation, he takes it. You can imagine his thinking, what a promotion I've got. From priest to a family, to priest, to an entire tribe. I mean, he, he protests initially when they break into the shrine and they steal its contest. But as soon as they make him the job offer, number, uh, Judges 18.20 tells us, it says, then the priest was glad straight away. He took the ephod, the other household gods, and the carved image and went along with the priests. So what does this Levite illustrate for, for us? Well, surely I would say the believer who behind their cloak of res religious respectability, who's not prepared to really serve the Lord or who's just not happy with where and how the Lord is calling them to serve. You see, this is an example of the Christian who behind all their spiritual posture and maybe in all their pious words, whose first love and commitment actually is to themselves. And in relation to all this, Gary Enrig, he says here, he says one of Satan's most subtle devices is to get a Christian dissatisfied with the life circumstances and the area of, of service God has given them. I should be better known. I should be up front more. I should receive more praise for what I'm doing. It is, a ve it is very subtle. But far too often, Christians will not do a job, will not serve because they think it's beneath them. Or they will leave a church because they think no one pays enough attention to them. Or they will pout because someone else seems to be more important than they are. You know, and, and thinking about this, I, I found incredibly searching the words of Amy Carmichael. You know, Amy Carmichael, who in 1895 went to India as a missionary and for 50 years stayed there and served the Donavar community. And that was a community that was focused on serving homeless children, particularly those who'd been forced into child prostitution. But during her life, as I'm sure most of you will know, Amy Carmichael wrote a number of, of devotional classics. And in one of these, If, she wrote of what she called Calvary Love. And here are just two examples out of 64 sayings that she sets out in this. This is what she says. If I cannot in honest happiness take the second place or the 20th, if I cannot take the first without making a fuss about my unworthiness, then I know nothing of Calvary love. If the praise of others elates me and their blame depresses me, if I cannot rest under misunderstanding without defending myself, if I love to be loved more than to love, to be served more than to serve, then I know nothing of Calvary love. It really searches you out. That really searches me out. And I tell you, if this gets underneath our religious armor and forces an ouch from us in some way, 
then we've got some choices. We can choose just to ignore this and to keep on the way we're going. Or we can get defensive and get angry at this and make things worse. Or we can respond to this the right way. We can face up to where we are. We can repent and we can make sure that it's not a facade, but that God really is actually first, really is Lord of our lives, leading us to be ready and eager to serve him wherever, whenever, whatever he's calling us to do. Well, let's finish now by looking at our third and final example of how we can give an outward impression of being right with God while within that's not so as we look finally here at false aspirations. And I believe that's seen in chapter 18 in the action of the Danites, especially as they, they conquer the lash. But again, someone might want to protest. But wait a minute, didn't God's people tell, didn't God, sorry, tell his people to conquer and to subdue the land? So isn't the tribe of Dan then here doing precisely what we've just said we should do? Aren't they obeying God? Aren't they putting him first? In fact, aren't they here actually compensating for something of a lack of God's provision for his people? For 18, one tells us, and in those days, the, tri the, the tribe of the Danites was seeking a place of their own where they might settle because they had not yet come into an inheritance among the tribes of Israel. Well, I have to say, in fact, this is not the case. For you see, the Danites were given land. They were given an inheritance when the promised land was divided up in Joshua 16. The problem was that they refused to trust God and attempt to drive out the fierce people occupying that land. And so as a result of this, they were then driven, forced into the hills and reduced to living in two towns in relative poverty. Now, at this point then, the tribe of Dan had two options. They could either repent of their lack of faith and they could trust God to give them the victory over this fierce, warlike tribe of the Amorites. Or they could look for somewhere else. Out of God's will. A new people, not so fierce. A place relatively undefended and vulnerable to a surprise attack. And here you see, we see that the Danites chose the second option. They chose the easy option. And it all fits in when you think of it with their stealing of Micah's idol and their stealing of his priest. Because, you see, they knew what God wanted of them. But here instead, they chose to try and cut God down to their size. And so they put in place a mouthpiece, a man who would only speak and say to them the easy truths the things that they wanted to hear. But how applicable this is, I think, to so much of Christianity in our day. Christians who want a front of religion. Christians who want the comfort of having a faith. But they want it 
without sacrifice. They want it without demands being made of them, without cost or commitment. Well, let me say to you now, easy living Christianity, cost-free Christianity, Christianity light, I don't know quite what it is, but I tell you what it isn't, living the Christian life like this. I'll tell you what it isn't. It isn't true. It isn't authentic. It isn't God-honoring. And it certainly isn't God-pleasing. But you see, if we're superficial enough, we might be satisfied with what this kind of living brings us in the here and now. We might be happy to go for second best. And if you look at the tribe of Dan, well, you know, they got their land. They got their city. They got their priest. They had their shrine. What I want to say to you we desperately need to take note of, though, is that all of this, ultimately, was spiritually and eternally meaningless. For a little bit later, in First Chronicles, when the list of the tribes and families of Israel is given and laid out, Dan is the only tribe which is totally ignored. Their name is not there. So it would seem then that their love of ease, their desire to take the easy way, the cost-free way, that this had led them then to intermarry and to assimilate into the surrounding tribes to the extent that they could no longer be considered in any way to be a part of the people of God. And you know, even worse, in Revelation 7, as there in that chapter, there's a look forward to the end times. There again, the tribes of Israel are all listed, except for the tribe of Dan. There's no mention of the tribe of Dan. They then have no significant part in God's eternal future. And how tragic and terrifying that is and let it be a warning to each one of us that God's not fooled by a front he's not fooled by pretense he's not fooled by religious practice God's not fooled by that God does look at the heart as he did when he chose David and God is looking for a people who acknowledge him and give him his place as Lord of their hearts and Lord of their lives. And a people then who, because of that, are overflowing with his love and whose lives are marked and stamped with his holiness. This is the kind of people that please God. This is the kind of people who know God's blessing now and eternally. And again I say, may we be that kind of people here. Let's pray together. Father, we just thank you again for the challenge of your word and for the relevance of your word, that that word written so long, long ago is right up to date and speaks into our lives here and now. But Lord, your word speaking to us that's never the end of the story. 
because we've got to respond to what you're saying. We've got to be honest and measure our lives against the challenge of your word. And then we've got to respond by putting right whatever needs to be put right. Lord, may we be ready to do that and to give you glory and honor among your people here. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.